0: Hello, and welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, May 26, 2019, we're continuing our series titled Genesis in the Beginning. Today's sermon, in his image, is going to be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, and chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. We hope you enjoy. If you have your Bible open up to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter one, and while you were doing that, let me explain a little bit about a sermon, what it's really supposed to be. A sermon is really taking the Bible and digging down into it to discover what it's really saying. What does it reveal about God and about us? What is it asking me to do or not do? Um, And one of the things that I believe that this particular passage we're looking at this morning, here in Genesis chapter one, is going to challenge us about the image of God, Because it talks about the fact that when God goes through the process of creation, when it comes to mankind, he put his image on us. That's different. And with that image comes some things that are maybe a little bit different. For example, it comes great sense of responsibility. And it comes a great opportunity with that that follows right out of the responsibility is the fact that you and I now represent God in some ways you will reflect God the question is going to be are you a good reflector or is your reflection need some work but part of that responsibility or that opportunity that comes as well is the fact that you and I also have a capacity to know God that no other part of creation has and I'm hoping that that'll be something that you will actually respond to Now, last week when Jeff was taking us through uh, the first part of Genesis and the days of creation, he went through day one and all the way through the very first part of day six. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to pick up halfway through the sixth day of creation. So let's stop and let's read here. We'll start with verse 26 and we'll end in chapter two, verses four through seven. Verse 26 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now stop just for a second. I want want to be really clear here that you catch this. I'm not saying that you are like God. I'm saying you're made in his likeness. You catch the difference there a little bit? We are made in the likeness of God. Now keep going here. Here and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens over the livestock over all the earth and every every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. And in the image of God he created them male and female, he created them. Now go over to chapter 2. Starting in verse 4 he says, "And these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created." In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plants of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was covering the whole face of the ground and then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So the first thing that we're gonna see here out of this whole thing is what's very clear in verse 26 is the responsibility that comes with being created in the image of God, the responsibility. Now, previous to this, God simply spoke every single thing there was into life. If you were to start off, you would see the first five verses there that he created time, space, and matter. Jeff got into that last week. Verses 6 through 8, it's water and land. Verses 9 through 13, it's the fruit and vegetables. It's verses 14 through 19, it was the sun, moon, and stars. And then you get to the final two days. In verses 20 through 23, he says, let the waters bring forth life. And so now you had the fish and the birds. And then in verses 24 and 25, he said that the earth bring forth living creatures, livestock, creeping things, and the beasts of the field. Now here's what's important for you to catch. Everything that God created up until this point is different than how you and I are created. In this case, everything up to this point, God simply spoke it and it was done. It was created. But here it changes. Now you notice that, it's back in verse 26. Notice how the pronoun has changed here. He doesn't say let there be, now he says let us make man in our image. That word there in Hebrew, make, is the word saw. It means to take substances and to combine them together to sort of manufacture something that wasn't there at the beginning. Now if you were to go over to chapter two, verse seven, he uses the word formed there. It's the idea that, uh, of, of taking, like a potter would take clay and he mixes water and, and other things and puts it together and he forms it like this and then he begins to make it something that he wants. This is all about the process of where you and I came from. In fact, keep your finger here in Genesis and I want you to go over to Psalm 139, largest book in the Bible. Psalm 139 and look at how God told David that the creation went. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In other words, God showed literally at that point how amazing and wonderful he was when he created us. I'm gonna do a better job, watch this. He says, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, God has done something amazing here. When God created us in his image, it was such a big deal because no other part of creation has that designation. No animal, no plant. I mean, it's not like you can go outside and walk up to the nearest tree and see something stamped in it, this tree made by God. But again, with that, with this being created like God, being created in his image, which is the highest Honor that God could possibly put into creation comes responsibility. Well, where does that responsibility start? Go back to verse 26. He says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them rule, let them have dominion or rule over the fish of the sea and over every other single thing that's absolutely alive. In other words, God created all things, He obviously owns all things, and then He gives it to us to rule. Now, I don't want to take off on just what that rule exactly should look like at this point, but I will say this. If I, come, if I let you come to my backyard and you come to my backyard and you dig a hole anywhere you want to and throw trash, I'm probably not gonna be happy, right? Wouldn't you imagine that if God gave you this earth to steward, he expects you to do a good job? I think that's probably pretty important. Now, that's for another day. Let me me change gears here with you. The fact that God put us here to rule is such an interesting thing because it totally goes against biology. Think back on your biology for a second. Remember something called natural selection? Survival of the fittest? Leave it alone. Natural selection takes place this is how balance will be created out there and, and things will just sort of fight it out you know, and, and that will decide who rules. Much like what could happen you know, on the plains of Africa when the lions and the hyenas go after it, somebody is going to win by brute force and rule. That is not the way God has put our earth together though. We don't rule by brute force. We rule because God designated that we would rule. I mean, if it came down to brute force, to be honest, you and I would get killed by most things out there. Whether it's in the water. You ever been to Florida? Everything in the water in Florida will kill you. Okay? You know, everything, I mean, out there, I mean, there's plenty of things that are bigger and stronger that can do that, but the truth is God created us to rule, and in doing that, he created us a more capable creation. We can think anything that's out there. We can communicate anything that's out there. We have this crazy ability that no animal, no part of creation has to be able to look at inanimate objects and go, you know, I think I could make a weapon out of this or something to protect me out of this. We're different, we're greater. Verse 26 said God made us in his image, in his likeness. That means that our capabilities are greater than the rest of creation. We're self-conscious. We're self-reflective. We can think abstractly. We can understand beauty. We're capable of thinking in the third person. We have the ability to think and speak that sets us apart from every other part of creation. And then you start even talking about the spiritual things. We can know righteousness. We can judge when something is good or it's bad. We can actually change our lives. We can communicate with God. You were born to communicate with God. God created us with attributes, that uh, personality that no animal or fish or any other thing in part of all of creation has. Why? Because he loves us. Because he made a choice to do that. He made us greater in our calling, (coughs) greater in our ability with the ability to think and reason and calculate, greater in our capacity to be able to be holy, to spread the gospel, greater our distinction, to be able to worship and glorify God. The animals may be wonderful to have around, but they're not created in the image of God. You know, it's so interesting, evolutionists will tell us that we're simply evolved animals with no greater value than any other thing that lives on the planet. It's such a a hard thing to grasp. English theologian from from 100 years ago, a guy named G.K. Chesterton, I thought, saw this position that they hold so well. He said a man will go to a political meeting and complain that people are being treated like animals. And then he'll go take a class and he hears we actually are animals. That's the world that's out there. Darwin said that mankind is solely a higher sort of animal, a highly evolved primate with no spiritual or transcendent significance. And yet if you look back at Genesis, it's very clear from verses 26 and 27 that mankind has the highest possible spiritual transcendence. We've been made like God. Different. Now with that responsibility comes the second thing is not only supposed to rule over the earth, but I represent Christ as well. That's the second thing here. Look at verse 27. And so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. This, the importance of the image of God is that we have a higher purpose, a representative purpose. We are to reflect Christ. People should be able to see God in us and sense God working through us And if we believe that every life has the imago day, the image of God stamped on us, it should change how I value other people. And that means that every person that I meet, I ought to treat with respect and with kindness and with a sense of self worth. Because I stop and I recognize that in the middle of the creation, God made something special that bears his stamp. And by the way, this is not a reciprocating thing. There's no place that he stopped and he says, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and treat people with kindness if they treat you with kindness. No. We're supposed to treat people with love and respect and kindness no matter who they are. This is the defining mark of every believer that we represent Christ. Christ. I mean, I I realize that maybe I'm gonna, you know, take it into a harder direction for you, but do you have any idea where the idea of human rights came from? You know, probably most people would say, like, well, if I go back in my civics class, it probably, you know, came from Western thought or the Greco-Roman society. That is not the case. Western thought did not produce human rights. Human rights comes right out of the Bible, Genesis chapter one, it starts off right there. You were created in the image of God. You wanna know how I you know that's the start of it? Keep your finger there and I want you to turn over to Genesis chapter nine. God here stops and he's, now he's gonna talk about his covenant that he has with Noah and part of the covenant that he has with Noah is he's saying I'm going to hold you responsible for what you do with other people. Listen to what he says here starting in verse five. He says, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man and from every fellow man I will require a reckoning for, reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. In other words, here's the truth. Because I put my image on every single man, I am requiring you to be responsible for them. What does that mean? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, that is exactly what it means. The whole idea of the imago Dei, the image of God, is that all mankind then has something inside of them of value. Now if you don't believe that, if you don't believe in the image of God, then you really don't have any grounds at all for human rights. I mean, you'd have to go the evolutionary route, the natural selection route, the biological choice there, but that's not the biblical choice. The biblical choice is that every single life bears the image of God, and though every single life matters, the unborn, it matters, the newly born, they matter. Special needs. They matter. Old age. They all matter. You know, historically, if you go back to the first century into the Greco-Roman world, you realize that slavery was rampant. In fact, in some places there were two and three times as many slaves as there were free men. That's not the beginning of human rights. Poverty was so terrible that people simply died and all over, right in your own neighborhood. There were lots of abortions. They were dangerous, but they were done. There was infanticide. Infanticide basically means that you as a family could decide when a little baby was born whether that baby really mattered in your family, and if not, you just simply threw it out. And very often that happened in agrarian cultures because if they stopped and they saw, well, it's another little girl and she's not going to really produce on the farm like another boy would produce. And so they just would get rid of them. Like life didn't even matter. Or the, the sick and the elderly, if you got to a certain point and they felt like you weren't productive any longer, they would just let you die. It was all legal. And then Christians came along because they believed Genesis chapter one verses 26 and 27 that the image of God resides in every single human being and they became the champions of human rights. And the church began to care for babies. The church cared for the poor and for the widows. And by the way, I, I... I run into this all the time. Yeah, that's what you guys in the church ought to do. We're the church. The church is people. Listen, because we believe in the Imago Dei, I want to be clear here. There is no room for you to treat people like second class citizens. Not in our faith. There's not. Well, what if I disagree? What if I'm in the middle of some political argument and I feel like it's really important? Hey, look, disagree, this is America, you can do that. But disagree with kindness and respect and dignity. Unfortunately, it just seems like our nation today has lost its way and we treat people with such disdain and we say awful things and horrible things on both sides of the aisle. It's gotten ridiculous, folks. It should not be true of us as Christians. Forget the Republican Democrat thing. You're a believer in Christ. We are to recognize that there is a difference inside of us. Listen, if you call yourself a Christian, I want you to understand something. You know what that word Christian means? Little Christ. Is that what the world sees? Do they see that in us? We were created by God to reflect his glory, his goodness, his love, his character. Paul wrote about that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He says we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God appointed beforehand that we should walk in them. We are supposed to be different. People are supposed to look at us and see something different. This is the beginning of the Bible. This is not halfway through. Well, when I get better, I'll start applying this to my life. Folks, this is how it starts with us. The closer I follow Jesus, the more I should display the image of God. The more I ought to treat others with worth and value as if they have the image of God in them. now, that responsibility that creates this representation a reflection also opens up the door for relationship go over to chapter 2 look at verses 4 through 7 Verse 4, he says, and these are the generations of heaven and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was coming up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, let me be clear here. Chapter two is complementary to chapter one. It's one cohesive narrative. It just has a different function. At the beginning of chapter two, what you get is, is, is Moses is telling us what the created earth looked like before the creation of Adam. Verses four through six, he says, there was no shrub, there was no plant of the field. God hadn't yet sent rain. Streams were coming up from the earth. If you want to know what that would be like, if you've ever been out to, um, uh, like, Wickenburg on the way out there and you drive by this river there called the Hassayampa, you know what that word means? Upside down river. You dig down in the water, or dig down in the dirt, and the water is down below. Okay. It's not the most uncommon thing in the world. So, here the problem, though, is at this point is that one thing that's missing from the garden at that point is there is no laborer or caretaker of the field. There's no man. And so, what you get in verses five through seven is this play on words between ground and man. Ground is the word Adama, A D A M A H. The man here is Adam, A D A M. The problem is there is no Adam to work the Adama at this point. Being made out of the Adama then makes Adam the perfect person to work it. So verse seven here tells us that Adam is formed out of the Adama, out of the dust. And of course, you know, the farther you go into Genesis in chapter three, if you get to 319, you'll see that if the penalty for being in sin is that you go back to the dust. But what I want you to see here about the relationship thing is in verse four. Because this is where the relationship starts here. Look at verse four. This is these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created into the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, what's important to understand here is this, is there were two names mentioned there in verse four for God. The Lord God. Two words. Yahweh, Elohim. Elohim is the word up until this point is the only word that we've known about for God to this point all through chapter one. 31 verses, 32 times the name Elohim is used. That name means creator, sustainer, and judge. It's a very powerful, regal, majestic name, but it's not necessarily a real relational name. But now you get to chapter two, and they add to it this name Yahweh, and Yahweh means Lord of the people. Now, think about this. Put these two together here. You have Elohim, the creator, judge, sustainer of all things, but he's the Lord of the people. He's our God. Do you understand what he's trying to say? The one who created all things, he is the one that we could know. That tells us that God is knowable. Now, there are two really important truths to catch out of all this before we go too far. If God is knowable, the question is do you know him? If he describes himself from the very beginning as not only the creator of all things but the one that is knowable, why have you not sought that relationship with him? What would hold you back, pride? The second thing is this, with that responsibility and that representation is the issue of reflection. Do I actually reflect Christ? Now let me tell you why this is a big deal, because Jesus preached the same thing. In Matthew chapter five, verses 14 through 16, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says these words, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill could not be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp or put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven.'" So Jesus wants to be clear about the fact this too is that you and I are supposed to be a reflection. We are supposed to take the light of the Lord, the glory of the Lord and let it shine off of us like the moon shines the glory of the sun. Now here's the question, do you do that? I'm gonna ask the band if they'd come out and I wanna walk you through something very simple here. Last hour was the first time we've ever done this and so we're hoping it's right, but I want this to be something that sticks in your mind. It's very important that you catch this. You and I are called to be reflections of Jesus Christ, but some of us, some people have so positioned your life that you basically came someplace and you said, Look, when I was a kid, I asked Jesus to come into my life and or I did that with my family or something like that. But basically the truth is, if anybody were to know, I make all my own decisions and I do what I want to do. Let me show you what your reflection probably looks like on me. It's not real great. Maybe though, maybe somewhere along the line you said, you know what, I I go to church and I sort of feel bad at times and I decide, you know God, I'm gonna do better and I'm really gonna try to live for you and then I fall back into my old ways and I kind of do good and then I do bad and sometimes I reflect and sometimes I don't. What he's asking us to do, he's asking us to see the responsibility that we have to represent him and to reflect him clearly with our lives. The question is, do you do that with your life? Do you reflect Christ in such a way that all the world gets to see the light shining from you? Thank you. I I want to be clear here. Are you a good reflector of the sun in your life? Cuz if not something needs to change. It needs to change. This morning we're gonna take communion and I'm gonna go ahead and ask the people who are gonna be serving us if they would go ahead and, and grab the elements and begin to pass them out. And as they do that, they're gonna come around and they're gonna have these little, little, little cups here and there's one inside of the other, there's two of them. Take both of them and hold on to that. But let me encourage you that as you're doing this, this is really important for you to catch. Communion is really for people who believe. Because see, we're remembering the Lord's death until he comes. If you don't believe in the Lord's death, don't take communion. It's not for you, it'll mean nothing to you at all. On the other hand, you could believe right where you're at right now by simply placing your trust in Jesus, asking him to forgive you to come into your life and take control of you. But here's the second thing. If you look at your life and you say, you know, I've made that decision I ask Christ to forgive me. I ask Christ to come into my life. I, 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 I am a Christian, but the truth is I am not reflecting him at all or my reflection has been poor. This is the time for you to change. You see, the reason communion happens is to remind us that Jesus came and gave his life so that you and I would remember what it cost to help us walk with him. So examine your life while we we sing. Would you examine your life and make sure you're right and ready for this? And then we'll come back together and take it together. Examining our lives to make sure that we know him and that we're committed to being the image of God that the world gets to see a reflection of our Savior. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my, my body. It's broken for you. Do this and remember to me. Remember what I did for you. passage tells us that in the same way after supper he took a cup and he said this represents my blood shed for you as often as you do this you remember my death for you let me encourage you you, you taking this this morning, I'm gonna take this by faith that what this meant is, you're saying, Lord, I'm ready to be, I'm ready to be your reflection. Father, move in our hearts in a powerful way so that we could honor you through all of this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Jesus went to the cross not just to save you, from an eternity separated from him. Jesus went to the cross to t- bring you into his family, to change you into a reflection of him so that the whole world might see. Go out this week and be the reflection of Christ. God bless you, I love you.